Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take irreverent dives into stories of the early republic. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jess Dory. And this week we'll be talking with Dr. Mark Cheatham, author of several books about Andrew Jackson, the editor of the Martin Van Buren Papers, and a professor at Cumberland University, where he teaches a course on conspiracy theories. Oh, badass. Right, that's going to be the focus of our talk. Oh, cool. I'm so excited. But first, I want to talk about one of the greatest conspiracy theories in the world. Mm, in the world? In the world. Well, I'm thinking Watergate, but that's kind of more of the country. No, this is something more international. Oh, the moon landing? <laughs> no, no. that's Those are very specific. This is a, a powerful group pulling strings behind the, the Illuminati? scenes. Illuminati? We're going to talk about the Illuminati. Oh, that is... I'm I'm there for it. Tell me what comes to mind when you think of the Illuminati. Well, Dan Brown, of course. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> what was that book he wrote that I was obsessed with? Uh, was it The Da Vinci Code yes, or Angels thank and you. Demons? The Da Da Vinci Code. You filled me with wine on an empty stomach. <laughs> You've had like one sip. I've had two sips. I already feel it because all I had for dinner was, you know, rice. Oh, that's right. They call you two sip Jesse. <laughs> No one calls me Jesse, first and foremost. <laughs> and usually I can hold more than two sips, well, but I don't know what it is. I think I'm just hungry. There's some trifecta. You know how I have a trifecta? Mm -hmm. It's like the hungry, the tired, and the cold. Yeah. I would say all three are at play right now. Okay. And then we add, we're adding tipsy. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> to the trifecta. Yeah. And you just sneezed. So you're basically all the seven dwarves at this point. <laughs> oh my gosh. But um, yeah, yeah. I might be a hot mess, but I'm re I'm there for it. For the Illuminati, I'm, I'm all for conspiracy theories. All right. Because we're going to talk about the role the Illuminati played in the election of 1800 between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Whoa. And just to clarify, I'm not all for conspiracy theories. Usually I don't believe in them. Let's just put that. Sure. But I love hearing about them. <laughs> right? That's how I feel about ghosts. Exactly. Except I might have some beliefs about that. Anyway, that's a deep, deep irreverent dive into another direction. <laughs> I would say. Let's, let's bring it on. All right. The Illuminati. First off, awesome name for a club. Truly, I think that 80% of the staying power is just how cool the word Illuminati is and how fun it is to say. Yeah. Why do you think it's so fun to say? Illuminati. I mean, it really, it's it's kind of Italian. Yeah. Right? It it's, sounds like a cool pasta. Yes. Except with magic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a magic pasta. Yes. Um, but that was not the original name, by the way. Oh, what was it? Uh, first, it was called the Covenant of Perfectibility perfectibility that changes things yeah but that was a little too weird sounding so the founder almost called it bee order like b-e-e -E, like buzz buzz bees that's lame right i mean bees are freaking cool but yeah but they don't but... make good titles like bee movie <laughs> right that did not go over well and it didn't have a great name did it but um bert's bees is going well for them don't you think like, like chapstick and stuff yeah and and chapstick and stuff and all of our son's pajamas <laughs> oh wow wow that is quite the empire it's quite an empire well hats off to bert and bees yeah hats off to the bees so those were the names before the founder stumbled upon the much cooler name of illuminati which means enlightened in latin mm. so the illuminati was a real thing in germany bavaria more specifically Oh, tell me more. It was founded on May 1st, 1776. That is, that is old. Yeah. It was just a couple of months before our nation's birthday. Older than us. A little bit. Uh, it was the brainchild of a professor, Johann Adam Weishaupt. He wanted to introduce scientific and secular thinking, but he worked in a very religious, Catholic-controlled environment where that kind of thing wasn't kosher. Mm. I might be mixing my metaphors there. <laughs> um, to spread these enlightened ideas, he had to form a secret club. He modeled it after the Freemasons, which that was an existing international group that had members, I mean, even like George Washington. You know, it was a secret club, but it wasn't too out there. Pretty bougie. You know. So eventually, with some help from experienced Freemasons who were really good at organizing and recruiting, they targeted young, impressionable minds, along with some older, popular Freemasons who had some pull. 
kind of like a cult. A little bit like a cult. Sounding, sounding like a cult. They grew to a few thousand members in German-speaking countries, but the secret group was getting too big for its own good. It couldn't fly under the radar anymore. So the Duke of Bavaria, he outlawed all such groups in 1787, targeting the Illuminati specifically. Oh. He said, you can't have secret groups. Yeah. Can't have secret groups. That's just, I mean, it's kind of a right to start a club, you know? You know, I guess it's got to be public and it can't be secular and it's just got to follow the church guidelines and, you know, you got to fall in line. That's scandalous. Yeah. Several members were arrested, including a guy named Xavier Zwack. Zwack? Zwack. With a Z and a W after that? And a A-C-K. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Zwack. It's spelled just how you would hope it would be. Okay. Um, it may not be pronounced that way. <laughs> so a bunch of his papers were seized and leaked. Oh. And they didn't make... Zwax? Zwax papers, yeah. They didn't make the group look good. Oh, what did Zwax papers say? Well, they just sort of revealed how the group was kind of pro-atheism and a sex cult and maybe pro-suicide what um pro-abortion and maybe there was some stuff about poison and counterfeiting and you know just plans just plans just some some poisonous plans stuff that doesn't look good taken out of context oh wow yeah especially in a you know buttoned down country so when this got out it fed the idea that there were secret groups out there who were evil, working against God, practically demonic. But the group, it was all quashed. They got rid of these secret societies. But the problem with making a secret group go away is that you can be left wondering, did it really go away? You'll never know. Did it just get more secret? Yeah, I mean, it probably got more secret. Mm, By all rational accounts, the Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati that was formed by Weishaupt, really did go away. Wow. It died out. But that didn't stop Mm. some paranoid folks from thinking that they simply went into hiding and continued pulling levers of power. In fact, folks thought, I bet they have gone underground. I bet they've gotten even bigger. And I bet they're responsible for the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. Oh, yeah. I see. So it becomes a conspiracy theory. Exactly. Like, well, how else could such a terrible thing have happened unless a secret group of evildoers was behind it? Yeah. I mean, I get the inclination to think, I'll never know if they actually went away. Yeah. Like, I get that inclination. But it's such a jump to then blame some a group or blame someone that you don't really truly know exists. It's a, just a huge jump. Yeah. There's a jump in logic there. And there's no evidence. Yeah, I'm just I'm very driven by evidence. You can't go around casting some shade (laughs) when there's no evidence. You would think. Or have a logical connection before you treat someone poorly. And I would say blaming someone for the French Revolution is is treating them poorly. You wanna be (laughs) you wanna be sure. Well, some folks laid out all their evidence and it was compelling to some people. A Scottish professor named John Robinson published a book, Proofs of a Conspiracy, that detailed his theories. And this was around the same time as a French Jesuit priest named Augustin Barou tied together Enlightenment leaders and Freemasons and the Illuminati. He tied them all together in a plot to eliminate all religion, all government, all civil society, and all property. Wow. Yeah, his theory was basically uh, what my cousins on Facebook think the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to do. Oh. Yeah. Well, these fears quickly jumped the pond to the United States. At this point, around 1798... Uh, There were some pro-French Revolution journalists from Europe who moved to the U.S., and they were writing, like, some pro-France stuff. And tensions at this point were really getting high between the U.S. and France. Uh, It seemed like war was imminent. This was the quasi-war that we talked about in the Hamilton and Adams episode. Got it. Where Hamilton really wanted the big army, and Adams was all about peace. Mm -hmm. And they were all about hating each other. (laughs) This is also part of why the Alien and Sedition Acts came to be. It was the idea that these foreign journalists were infiltrating America with their foreign ideas, subverting our republic so they could replace it with some godless anarchy or something like that. Hmm. And this environment was just ready for... Explode. Yes, it was ready to accept the conspiracy theory. I wish you guys could see his hand gestures (laughs) right now. (laughs) He's exploding with his hands. I am. They were just ready to accept an idea that the only group that could be behind a dastardly plot like this 
was the Illuminati. So the idea that Jefferson's party, the Democratic Republicans, were in league with the Illuminati, it gained some traction with Federalists like John Adams and Abigail Adams, even George Washington. Wow, they went for it, huh? Yeah, some preachers uh, in New England mostly, they seized on this idea in their sermons. That's where it really took hold and it became like a full-on Illuminati scare. This guy named G.W. Snyder, he sent this book, Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religion and Governments of Europe. He sent it to George Washington. He was worried that a branch of Freemasons that distinguishes itself by the name of Illuminati, uh, that their plan was to overturn all government and all religion, even natural, and who endeavor to eradicate every idea of a supreme being and distinguish man from beast by a shape only. <laughs> Sounds like what the Republicans think of the Democrats. <laughs> it, it, it's very resonant of modern politics and demonizing yes, the other side. It really is. Yeah, so he sent this to George Washington, and he told Washington that it was up to him basically to save the universe. He said, may the supreme ruler of all things continue you long with us in these perilous times. May he endow you with strength and wisdom to save our country in the threatening storms and gathering clouds of factions and commotions. Wow, factions and commotions. He sounds, was, really sounds like our life, doesn't yeah. it? And he was speaking George Washington's language because just a couple years earlier, George Washington came out with his famous farewell address that was basically a warning against factions and parties and said, like, this is going to destroy our country, guys. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine the amount of pressure Washington was under. Yeah. I mean, how did he stay so cool? I really am he curious. He didn't all the time. <laughs> right. Well, it's that one time he blew up. One yeah. time on his horse in the middle of a war. I'm going to give him that one. No, he did it in front of Jefferson, too, and in front of the cabinet. Um, not often, but... It wasn't often, and he had a tremendous amount of pressure on his shoulders. So he blowing did. up the amount of times that I can count on one hand is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so George Washington was like, oh, yeah, this sounds good to me. Oh, but hey, hey, hey. Don't drag the Freemasons into this, okay? They're cool. It's not the Freemasons, all right? <laughs> because he was part of it. Yeah. So Washington, he was down with the conspiracy theory that the Democratic Republicans were Illuminati. He even said there was too much evidence to deny that the founder or instrument employed to found the Democratic societies in the United States actually had a separation of the people from their government in view. I really want to know what this evidence is. And is it peer-reviewed? <laughs> <What I wanna, laughs> That's my main question. What I want to know is, is he talking about Thomas Jefferson specifically? Oh. Because I think he might be. Why would he associate the Illuminati with Jefferson? Because he says that the founder of the Democratic Societies in the United States, which is basically Thomas Jefferson, who's founded well, this opposing party. Well, then it sounds like he's talking about him. That's what I'm thinking. Um, it really sounds to me like George Washington was down to believe that Thomas Jefferson was part of the Illuminati. Wow. Once again, where's the evidence? <laughs> right. Well, Thomas Jefferson was not, in fact, part of the Illuminati. How do you know? I'm just going out on a limb. <laughs> um, he looked at Barul's book and he called it perfectly the ravings of a bedlamite. A bedlamite. Mm -hmm. Now that's a fun word. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Latin? No. Um, it refers to a hospital, I think, in oh, really? England, like Bedlam. Oh. Um, which is like an insane asylum, I believe. Oh, so it's right. another way of saying a crazy person. I see yeah. a bedlamite. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things in this episode I'd really like to adopt yeah. for my everyday speak. <laughs> yeah, I think you should do it. I will. I will. Yeah, I'm going to. People are going to look at me like I'm nuts. But, they will. They'll. Uh, but that's okay. You'll be a bedlamite. That's okay. <laughs> I can be a bedlamite in their eyes. That's yeah, fine. Fine. Because you know my life is factions and commotions. <sighs> Totally. <laughs> Interestingly, Jefferson, though not part of the Illuminati, he kind of dug the ideas of the OG Illuminati. And he said that if Weishaupt had written here, where no secrecy is necessary in our endeavors to render men wise and virtuous, he would not have thought of any secret machinery for that purpose. Hmm. So basically, if Weishaupt was in the United States at the time, he could have studied all the things he wanted. He could have promoted all the ideas he wanted out in the open where we have this freedom. Right. So why hide it when we're free? 
Exactly. But in Germany, you couldn't do that. So you had to form a secret club. And then when you form a secret club, people get suspicious and they start mm-hmm. thinking that you're up to things. And then papers come out saying maybe you're up to some things. <laughs> it becomes a whole big thing. Mm-hmm. So leading up to the election of 1800, you've got the Federalists claiming that if Jefferson won, that would be the end of religion in the United States and your daughters would become the concubines of the Illuminati. Wow, just a lot of fear-mongering, even back then. Yeah, that was from a New England preacher. Oh, wow. I just, I don't know. I, I mean, politics, has, has it always been fear-mongering and rumors? Haven't we grown as a civilization? You know, in some ways, yeah. In some ways, no. It's a one step forward and then Facebook. <laughs> um, then a man named John Cousins Ogden... He was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican with Jefferson. He took it upon himself to dictate a Republican response to these accusations. Oh. I'm going to give you a choice, a multiple-choice question. Oh, no. I did not do well in the Ram one. I've never felt confident with multiple-choice. You've confirmed that with the Ram questions, and now we're doing it again. You really want to do this again? There's no wrong answer. That's not true. There's, there's only one right answer. You, <laughs> but there's no wrong answer. You're going to, on the other side of the mic, go wrong. I'm not going to do that. This wrong. Is, this will go on your permanent record. Oh, but it's fine. Okay. Um, I'm ready. I'm going to give you a I choice. used to like being involved <laughs> and interacting until there was multiple choice involved. So this guy, this Republican, uh, did he respond to these accusations that his party was in league with the Illuminati by A? Not responding at all in the hopes that the story would die out without fuel. I don't think that's it because that's not like what we would do today. B, publishing a point-by-point denial of each accusation with evidence. That's a possibility. Or C, saying, we're not Illuminati, you're Illuminati. Oh, it's definitely C. The answer is C. (laughs) I got it right. You did get it right. That's a first. Congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. I'm really proud of myself. You should be. Have another sip. (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. He published a pamphlet titled, okay, this is, I got to take a breath here. A view of the New England Illuminati who are indefatigably engaged in destroying the United States under a feigned regard for their safety and under an impious abuse of true religion. That is, that's not a title. That's the first chapter, <laughs> right. you know? I don't think you can use that as a title. It's a title. It's a blurb. It's a commercial. It's a prologue. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I wonder what he's going to say in there. It sounds like he said it already, honestly. Yeah. He said that the real secret group operating behind the scenes to control the people were the New England Federalists who wanted everyone to conform to their religion. And they wanted that religion to take over the government. And their crusade against the Republicans like Jefferson, it was nothing more than a witch hunt, just like the Salem witch trials in New England a hundred years earlier. Wow. And I just can't stop thinking about how pointing fingers at each other, that tactic doesn't lead to any good. You just, no, it's like the ultimate narcissistic action in an argument. You know, deflecting everything and pointing it the other way and putting the ball. I mean, it's just um, gaslighting. It's complete gaslighting. Yeah. I mean, this I'm rubber, your glue tactic was pretty successful. I mean, it's successful at, at creating mayhem. Like, oh, now we don't know what's real at all. Oh, yeah. Accused of something? Just turn it around. Change the meaning. Who cares? I'm not fake news. You're fake news. Exactly. I'm not an insurrection. You're an insurrection. Right. Yeah. To be fair... The accusations against the Democratic Republicans in the first place were pretty ridiculous. Right. Well, it's both. It's both ways. Yeah. 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 Well, Jefferson won the election of 1800, Mm -hmm. and the cries of Illuminati died down after that. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that probably uh, a little while into his term, people realized, hey, you know, it's been six months. My daughter is not yet a concubine of the Illuminati. (laughs) Maybe there's something. Maybe that was just a fair tactic. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Mark Cheatham and I don't talk about the Illuminati, but we do get into some other conspiracy theories. And we dig into the election of 1824, which was the first U.S. election where claims of it being rigged became the rallying cry of an entire political party. That's not new either then, huh? What are you going to do? This is So really, we haven't changed at all. We're the same country. I don't know whether to be tickled or baffled or terrified Welcome that we're not history. growing. 
Um, but without further ado, let's take a listen to my talk with Dr. Mark Cheatham. Okay, I'm excited. So welcome to the show, Mark. I'm so excited to have you joining us here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Howard. You're one of only a handful of professors in the country, I think, who is teaching a course on conspiracy theories. Before we get into that, how do you define a conspiracy theory? Well, uh, good question. Uh, scholars tend to sort of coalesce around the idea that a conspiracy theory has to be, first of all, between at least two people, uh, usually more. So there has to be some sort of alleged conspiracy involving multiple people. Secondly, it has to be in secret. Um, so if you're conspiring, you tend not to do that in public. You tend to do that in private. And then thirdly, there is some illegal or nefarious goal that you're trying to achieve, whether it's global domination or hmm. you know, stealing an election or something like that. There has to be something that goes against the community in which you live or goes against the political world in which you live. Um, so it's really those three components that I think most scholars would agree comprise a conspiracy theory. So that, I mean, that tells me what maybe a conspiracy is, but how do you differentiate between like a real conspiracy and something that you, you just call a conspiracy theory where maybe there's nothing to it or it's, it's unsubstantiated? Yeah. So really, in essence, every conspiracy theory could potentially be an unproven conspiracy. Like you said, there's no evidence that substantiates it or supports it. Um, we tend to use conspiracy theories in some specific ways, though. Uh, number one, conspiracy theories are unprovable. So, for example, it doesn't matter how much evidence you muster, it doesn't matter how much proof you offer people, they still believe that there's a conspiracy that exists. So okay. that that's definitely one way. Um, secondly, conspiracy theories tend to be populist. And what I mean is that they tend to imagine the, the vast majority of people of the world or of a, of a nation or of a group um, who are fighting back against a power that is evil or that is immoral or that mm. sort of thing. And so it's, it's even though you're going to have leaders, you're going to have people who are sort of leading the charge against these alleged conspiracies, what really makes the difference is the people involved and them rising up and saying, no, we're not going to be misled. We're not going to be you know, tricked into doing these evil things. We're going to stand up for virtue and for right and for liberty and that sort of thing. Conspiracy theories are interesting because, you know, one of the reasons that we believe in them or that people tend to believe in them is because they give us control. And that's, that's something that conspiracy theories address. We, we live in a world that is many times beyond our control. There are natural disasters. There are, you know, things that happen that, that you never would imagine happening, like uh, pandemics, for example, mm. um, that seem to come out of nowhere. And so when we as humans have that sense of losing control and when we have a sense of not being able to explain things, we try to find answers. Some people turn to religion. Some people turn to other things. But some people turn to conspiracy theories because it allows us to explain the unexplainable. And I think that's an important concept for people to remember when they're thinking about conspiracy theories is that for, for a lot of people, they start out as a way to maintain control over a world that seems to be out of control. When you started the idea for, for doing this class, like what was, I mean, that was before the pandemic, right? What was happening that made you think this is important or this is something that, that I think uh, would have a lot of value now? So the idea for this course actually um, came from my own background. So I grew up uh, in a very conservative, very fundamentalist uh, religious community that was, as I look back, permeated with conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories about the Antichrist, conspiracy theories about the one world government, mm. cons conspiracy theories about satanic cults and those types of things. And so that was something that uh, I grew up with and really never thought much about until probably until I got to graduate school. And then I started to realize, you know, some of the things that I, I was taught, most people don't believe. So why is that? And so that started to get me to think about, well, what is the basis of these beliefs? And then that led me into conspiracy theories. And so there was actually a professor at, at Utah, I think he's retired now, Bob Goldberg, who wrote a book on conspiracy theories in the 20th century. 
And his book really led me to, to realize this is what we're talking about. We're talking about conspiracy thinking. And so I began to delve into reading more about the scholarship of conspiracy thinking, Richard Hofstadter and other people. And so when I was teaching at my first full-time job, I was asked, you know, what courses do you want to teach? And I was like, well, I have this idea for a, an interesting course um, on conspiracy theories. And I think, I'm not sure what they were thinking. They might have thought, oh, no, we've made the wrong hire. Um, but really what I see the course as is, is as a way to use an interesting topic that most people know something about and to use it to teach students how do you evaluate evidence? How do you essentially go through the research methodology to determine whether something is, is true or verifiable or that sort of thing? Um, so, yeah, we talk about aliens and JFK's assassination and, you know, more serious conspiracy theories. But ultimately, the goal is to get students to think about how much our world is, is permeated by conspiracy theories. And then how do you, as a, as a rational individual, keep yourself from believing in fantastical thinking? And then also, how do you affect the people around you to ha perhaps show them how they might be led down that path as well? Well, yeah, there's so much there. That's really fascinating about your your background and how that kind of led you to that. And that, that mirrors a lot of people I know and, you know, my own experience in some ways. And kind of the idea that, you know, oh, when you go off to college, those those professors are going to change your mind and, and knock those values out of you. But really, it, it just sounds like the it's the pursuit of truth and, and questioning things that you've been told. Yeah, you know, I never, I don't recall ever having a professor who directly challenged anything that I personally believed. And that was probably because I was very shy and quiet <laughs> in part and didn't speak up very much. But I had professors who were simply teaching their subject, whether it was algebra or astronomy or, you know, history. And it was just this realization that, oh, I, I lived in a pretty insular community uh, in a lot of ways, and it's just a realization that mm, a lot of people don't seem to believe what I believed. Why is that? And I think a lot of students who live in insular communities and bubbles have that experience. And it's not it's not a deliberate indoctrination by professors. It's really just an opening of doors and perspectives that you probably never encountered before as a young person. Did you sense any hesitation within your family or community when you were going off to pursue a, a higher education in relation to your beliefs? No. Uh, my parents were always uh, very pro-education. Um, one of my parents finished high school, the other one didn't. And so they, from a very young age, they were, they were adamant that doing well in school you know, valuing academics, giving priority to that was really important in order to be able to have a better life. Um, not that I had a terrible life, but a better life than they had. Sure. Um, so I didn't definitely didn't face any pushback from them. Um, a lot of the people I grew up with, I don't uh, have any contact with. And that's for a variety of reasons, of course. But a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that I moved away um, and got a college degree and... A lot of them didn't, which is fine, but we have different values now, I think, in, in many, many different ways, religiously, politically, and in other ways. And that's what Facebook is for, I feel, so that you can monitor those people's values in, in real time when, <laughs> when you feel like becoming upset. Or maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, last fall, I, I jumped off of Facebook, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. It, it really helped my mental health. Uh, my blood pressure and all that. So, yeah, but you're, you're right. It is a way to, to check up on people and think, oh, yeah, I see what, I see what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely understand and respect that decision. Um, I, you know, I get so much from the Facebook community, but it's, mm. yeah, especially during the pandemic, I find myself staring at my phone for far too long. And uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> um, so, you talked about populism and conspiracy theories, and that definitely makes me think about Andrew Jackson and, and the so-called corrupt bargain. I wonder if you could kind of talk about what that was and why it was such a big deal and how it fits into the history of conspiracies. Sure. So in 1824, Andrew Jackson was one of five candidates who ran for the presidency. There essentially was one political party at the national level, at least at that point, and it was the old Jeffersonian party, they called themselves Republicans or sometimes Democrats. 
um, but they're they're the old Jeffersonian school. And so that that party had not total control of national politics, but almost total control. And so what happens when you have a one-party system tends to be that that party will split. Uh, and in this case, it's split among five of those five of those Republicans, and Jackson was one of those. By the time the election came around uh, in the fall of 24, they were really four viable, well, three viable candidates. There were four candidates still in the race. So you have Jackson, you have um, Henry Clay from Kentucky, you have John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts, and you have William Crawford from um, Georgia. And what's interesting is that Crawford had um, fallen ill the year before, so he was not really a viable candidate. So it's really Clay, Jackson, and Adams. Was the number five guy, would, would that have been Calhoun? That was Calhoun, that's right, yes. He, he, mm-hmm. uh, he just pops up everywhere. He does. The way he pops up in the history that I read, it's almost rude. <laughs> yes, yeah, we could have a whole other discussion about him. Um, so in any case, when the results come in, Jackson had won the most popular votes, he'd won the most electoral votes, he'd won the most states, but he had not achieved that electoral majority that you have to have to become president. So it didn't matter how many popular votes he had, he still had not become president. So the Constitution stipulated at that point that the election goes to the House of Representatives. And there, each state would vote as a unit. So no matter whether you had you know, one delegate or 27 delegates, you only had one vote as a state. Mm. And so whoever won a majority of the states would then become president. So between the, the, the fall election and the February vote in the House, there are some maneuvers that take place. And essentially what happens is Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams appear to make an agreement that if Clay, who was Speaker of the House, uh, would use his influence in that chamber to make Adams president, then Adams would select Clay as his Secretary of State. Now, for us today, that may not seem like a great trade-off, but at the time, Secretary of State was a stepping stone to the presidency. Mm. So uh, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams, all had become, John Quincy Adams, had all become president after being Secretary of State. So that agreement, which probably took place, we don't have a smoking gun, we don't have written evidence that outlines the agreement, but it seems pretty obvious, and it was discussed publicly at the time um, during the winter of 24-25. That agreement seems to have taken place. So when the House votes, even though Jackson seemed to be the clear choice of the people, of voters, Adams becomes president. And then about a week later, he appoints Clay as Secretary of State. So everybody believes those rumors we heard back in the winter were true. And this becomes what Jacksonians, supporters of Andrew Jackson, call this so-called corrupt bargain. You know, this is the bargain where the presidency was sold to the man who didn't deserve it for a, a political appointment, and the people were robbed of the presidency. Now, what's interesting is that Jackson initially, I mean, he's not, he's upset about what's happened, but he's not hell-bent on revenge. He's not immediately, you know, clanging swords and saying, we've Hmm. got to do something about this. He seems fairly content to go back to Nashville, to his plantation. He's in the Senate at that point, so... You know, he's, he's, ta- he's talked for years about retirement, so this may be a natural time for him to retire. But by the fall of 25, he and his supporters are talking about, well, we can't let this happen. We have to have a response. And so the response is, well, we're going to run Jackson again in 28. We're going to make sure we get our revenge. And this time we'll make sure that the will of the people is honored. This time we'll make sure it's not even close enough for there to be any question. It won't even be close enough for there to be a bargain. Um, And so that's what happens in 28, is Jackson wins the election, wins it very comfortably, and says that the people have spoken, that the will of the people has finally been enacted, and Adams and Clay are out of office. So do you believe that that John Quincy Adams and uh, Henry Clay actually did kind of make this this deal? I know there's a lot of dispute about whether or not that's really what happened. I do. I, again, there's no smoking gun. They didn't conveniently leave us a memo that they hmm. both signed. But it seems pretty clear 
They had meetings. Uh, neither of them liked Jackson for various reasons. The rumors were were abounding even before they started to meet, uh, or even before they met. And in, in what we think was the the meeting where they agreed to this this um, trade off. Um, so there's a lot of smoke, but it seems like a logical thing. And and it, so if you're Clay, you look at Andrew Jackson and. Clay's from Kentucky, Jackson's from Tennessee, the state right below him. They're both competing for the same base of voters. And so if mm-hmm. you're Clay, you definitely don't want Jackson um, to be a competitor. You don't want to have to run against him in, in, in 28 if you're thinking you'll be the natural successor to Adams. Um, Clay also had not liked the way Jackson had invaded Spanish Florida in the 18-teens. So he has lots of reasons not to like Jackson. Adams is from Massachusetts. He is cut from a whole different cloth from Jackson. They are totally different in many, many ways. And he thinks that Jackson's uncouth and uneducated and another Napoleon. Um, So neither man had a reason to want to support Jackson. Neither man had a reason to want to see him become president. And so it seems like a natural political tactic or strategy to say, hey, let's help each other out and make sure that this guy doesn't get into the White House. It strikes me that today, if something like that were to happen and Clay were qualified to be secretary of state, which it seems like by all accounts he was, yes, that it would just be business as usual, like regular politics. It doesn't seem like that kind of thing would seem all that corrupt today. No, not today. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think part of what, what's happening in the mid-1820s is the United States voting populace is shifting, so it's becoming more democratic. So a lot of property requirements that were um, needed for voting, tax-paying requirements, some some barriers to voting that had been in place for white men were disappearing. And so you have people, and when I say people, really white men, who see themselves as we're finally able to participate in the voting process like we've wanted to you know, like we've aspired to from, from the earliest days of the Republic. And now it seems like the powers that be are trying to prevent us from expressing ourselves, from expressing mm. our political will. And so I think that's part of what you're seeing is that it comes at a moment when democracy is becoming more important and is becoming more powerful. And it seems like those who are in power, the Adamses, the Clays and others are trying to keep the people voters from having that power. How big of a role do you think that cry of corrupt bargain played in the Jacksonian party really forming and coming into its own? And, and I wonder about Martin Van Buren, the, the little magician, the guy that I hear is behind the scenes, pulling levers in secret. Um, what role did he play in, in, in the corrupt bargain or using it to kind of form the party, if any? Yeah, Van Buren's an interesting guy, um, which, which seems odd because most people don't know much about him besides his mutton chops. <laughs> um, but he he had made a name for himself in New York. He had been involved in New York politics prominently for about a decade prior to the 24 election. Uh, he had put together uh, or helped put together the Albany Regency, which was essentially a political machine or a political faction in New York that... Um, had a lot of power and controlled a lot of New York during those years. So he is someone who had, at the state level, put together a way of bringing voters together, bringing politicians together successfully. So in the 24 election, interestingly enough, he doesn't actually support Jackson. He supports Crawford uh, Mm -hmm. because he believes Crawford is ideologically more Jeffersonian than Jackson is, that, that Crawford had the Jeffersonian values out of all the candidates. But Crawford's ill. Um, Van Buren still support, supports him, but Crawford doesn't win. So in looking ahead to 28, Van Buren is trying to figure out, now what do I do? I can't support Adams. I don't support Clay. Crawford, he's starting to recover. Who knows if he'll die? Calhoun, who, by the way, we talked about him, he becomes Adams's vice president. So he dropped out of the presidential race and becomes vice president, which was probably a pretty smart move, despite how, how it turns out. Um, so Van Buren is looking around saying, who can I support? And he looks at Jackson and says, you know what? Here's a guy who is close enough to a Jeffersonian, and he's someone who I think can win. 
So Van Buren works to put together a national coalition. So Van Buren's in New York, Jackson's in Tennessee. And then you have, they pull in Calhoun, who's in South Carolina. And so you have this national coalition that touches on the three major regions at that point, or three of the four. You have the Mid-Atlantic states, you have the West, and you have the Old South on the coast. So he's pulling together that national coalition, and I think he sees Jackson as someone, not that he can control, but he sees Jackson as someone who maybe could be guided and mentored by someone who's a political strategist like himself, like Van Buren. And it's, it's funny because I think Jackson looks at Van Buren and recognizes that here's someone who can help him win. Because mm-hmm. Jackson is a great general, he's a great leader of men, and all those things. Um, politically, he had not had a lot of success at the national level. And so I think Jackson recognizes in Van Buren, he is the person who can help me get over the top and become president. And Van Buren looks at Jackson and says, here's a guy I can get into the presidency and then use my influence and power to create a political coalition that will be sustained for, you know, however long um, uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like he was really, really pretty powerful behind the scenes. It's hard to think about claims of a rigged election and how far that could take a party without thinking of like the, the present day, the big lie I'm wondering what parallels do you see and what what differences do you see between then and now? Yeah, well, obviously in, in 24 and in 28, it made it made a huge difference. Um, you know, that probably was the 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 winning issue for the Jacksonian coalition was that corrupt bargain, that accusation. Um, there were other things as well, but that that was really sort of the the thread throughout the campaign that helped Jackson win win the twenty eight election. Um, so I think it can be very effective. You know, I think today you certainly can see that for a segment of the American voting population, there is huge appeal to the idea that an election has been stolen. It is something that, you know, just like in, in the 1820s, it's something that strikes at the very core of what we believe in as Americans, that our vote should count for something and that, you know, the whoever becomes president or whoever wins a political election should be the choice of the people, should be the choice of, of the voters who selected that person. And any intimation that that didn't happen causes some disquiet among voters. Um, and then when that is amplified... Um, by by media outlets and by um, by other political actors, um, it certainly can become a a driving force politically for a party or for for a group of people. You know how that plays out um, in in 2024 will be interesting to see. Um, you know, will it be the case where you have someone lose an election, claim that it was rigged, and then win an election in 24? Um, or will it be a case of a lot of furor, a lot of, a lot of sound and fury, and then nothing results from it? You know, I don't know. But certainly there are some lessons there. Um, whether, whether you believe that, that the 2020 election was stolen or not, there are some lessons there on both sides about how to respond to that and how to use that to position yourself for the next presidential campaign. What does history tell us as far as how to dispel a conspiracy theory that, that's, that's unfounded? Like, how do you get people to see the truth or to care about the truth? You know, I, I wish I, I, had, I had the answer for that. I could probably uh, go on a speaking tour. Um, you know, the thing about, about conspiracy theories, and this is where I think history sort of reaches its limit. You know, we can look at the, the historical precedents of conspiracy theories and alleged conspiracies, and we can say, here are examples of what's happened, and here's, you know, here are all the things that happened, here's why they happened, you know, here are the mm-hmm. consequences, and we could talk about how do we avoid that in the future, which is, you know, one of the important things about history, but there's an element of conspiratorial thinking that is psychological, um, that, mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of psychologists have, have looked at over the past few years in particular, and there are so many facets to that type of thinking that really, it doesn't matter if you present someone with, with factual information, it doesn't 
matter if you present them with refutation of what they're saying. Um, conspiratorial thinking is very hard to pry people away from. And part of it is because conspiratorial thinking, you know, the belief in conspiracy theories is self-sealing. And what I mean, you know, we talked about this really early on in, 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 in the podcast is that if, if nothing is provable or nothing is verifiable, then, then proving something to someone by presenting them with factual information won't make a difference. They'll just find other evidence or they'll find something else that supports their position. And so when I talk about this with my students, one of the things I talk about is, you know, as historians, we start with a, a hypothesis, you know, just like a scientist, we'll start with a hypothesis, we'll then collect evidence, analyze the evidence, and if our hypothesis doesn't make sense, then we alter it, we revise it, we may completely discard it and go with something else. But we let the evidence drive our argument, just like a scientist lets the evidence drive their outcome. But with conspiratorial thinking, that's not the case. It is you start with this belief and then you find the evidence that supports that. And when, you, when someone takes that approach, it's really difficult to get them to think differently. Um, you know, I have people in my own life who believe in a variety of conspiracy theories, the big lie and QAnon and other things. And you can't argue people out of those beliefs. Um, and it's frustrating and it's, mm. it's discouraging, frankly. And I'm not saying it's completely hopeless. Again, I think the area of psychology can probably help more than history, but it, but it is very frustrating to see that you can, you can offer examples from history and from other things and say, this is how, this is how we know that how this is going to wind up based on past events. And it doesn't really make any difference. Okay. Almost a glimmer of hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, it is frustrating when historians can't tell the future. That's something that... Well, you know, <laughs> they did not teach me that in graduate school. I promise. No. <laughs> I wonder if there's any historical precedence for the role of a president or the press to go after a, a particular belief or something and either dispel it or refocus the people in a way that uh, could could avoid some negative uh, repercussions. Yeah, uh, maybe. You know, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about John F. Kennedy in 1960. So Kennedy was a Catholic, and there there's a long history in the United States of anti-Catholicism. And in fact, lots of conspiracy theories, particularly in the 19th century, uh, about Catholics. Um, and so Kennedy took a moment during that campaign to directly address his religious identity. And did it make a difference in convincing people that conspiracy theories about Catholics weren't true? Did it make a difference in, you know, swinging votes his way? I don't know. But I think that is, that is one way that as, as presidents or as, you know, major political leaders, you can speak out against something and say, the evidence, the facts do not line up. You know, we have to reject this as a people um, in order to move forward, in order to keep this from pulling down our democracy. So, you know, that, that may not be a great analogy, but that's one example that came to mind um, while you were asking that. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think that um, if, if you're against something or you have a certain belief and then you're confronted with an example of what it really is, uh, I mean, that's, I, I think that's gone a long way in terms of why gay marriage is legal now today yep. and, and different things. Um, so, so there's, there's some hope yeah. in that. Um, it seems another reason to me that, that some conspiracy theories are appealing is because, like you said, there really are actual conspiracies. Um, so when someone brings up something like that and says, you know, uh, you know, U.S. intelligence really did propose attacking our own military and, and framing Cuba for it to give us an excuse to take action. Uh, and, and we didn't find out about that for decades. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you say, OK, all right, well, let's not be paranoid about everything then. Yeah, I, I mean, there definitely are conspiracies that happen, you know, with our own government. Um, you know, the example you gave, you can look at something like Watergate, you know, Watergate could have just been a conspiracy theory. It could have been something that Democrats drummed up to defeat a popular president. Turns out it was actually a real thing. Um, so, uh, you know, you talk about the Tuskegee experiments, you can talk about, you know, all kinds of different things that 
turned out to be actual conspiracy that turned out to be actually true um so i think you know the best approach to take is to be honest and acknowledge that you know when someone talks about not believing in conspiracy theories they're not saying that nothing secretive ever happens they're not saying that there are no conspiracies that have ever existed um you know that's simply not true what we're what i'm saying i'll just speak for myself what i'm saying is what is the evidence you know based on the evidence what can we say if we don't have the evidence at the time then we can't call it a conspiracy it has to be a theory it has to be speculative if decades down the road we find the evidence the evidence comes to light then you can say you know we were wrong you know 30 years ago we were wrong this actually did happen but at the moment you have to go on the evidence that you have you can't just simply speculate because once you start speculating anything's possible and if anything's possible uh, based on on little to no evidence then you know what's the point you know there's there's nothing that's objective there's nothing that's true there's nothing that's factual that we can hang our hat on oh i, I go between depression and hope in this interview i'm <laughs> sorry uh, about those mood swings <laughs> that's all right uh, they'd be there anyway i think um but is there is there one f- kind of favorite or pet conspiracy theory that that you either like to teach about or, or just a lesser known kind of conspiracy theory that you gravitate toward? Well, I, one of the ones, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it one of my favorites, but one of the ones that I talk about because I think it's really relevant. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about this with anti-Catholicism is the nativist movements of the 19th century. Mm. So nativism is, is, you know, the anti-immigrant perspective that, you know, only, Americans, only true Americans, however you define that, you know, should be in control of politics and education, those types of things. And so in the 18, mid 19th century, mid 1800s, there's this huge nativist movement that is focused on um, the, the Irish and Catholics um, and those types of immigrant groups, Irish and Catholic immigrant groups coming from Europe. And so there's actually a political party that that rises up in 1856. And so in that election, you have the Democratic Party of Jackson and Van Buren. You have this this newish party called the Republicans. You know, not those Jeffersonians, but a new party. A guy named Abraham Lincoln is involved in that one. Hmm. And then you have a third party called the Know Nothing Party or the American Party. And what's interesting is if you look... The Democrats are established. The Whig Party had disappeared and had disintegrated. And coming out of, of, of the embers uh, of the Whig Party were these two parties, Republicans and Know-Nothings. And there's no way to know which one would have become dominant at that point. You know, we can look back and see the Republicans did, but at that moment, it could have gone a different way. And so it's, it's possible that the 56 election could have resulted in the Democrats and a very strong nativist party and the know-nothing party becoming the two main parties. And so when I talk about that election, I talk about the anti-immigrant rhetoric, when I talk about the anti-Catholic immigrant, I use that to, to illustrate to students there's this thread throughout American history where nativism and anti-religiosity toward a specific group there are these threads that are common. They go through the early 20th century, you have the Klan, um, which is not only anti-African-American, but also anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. You move forward into the late 1900s, early 2000s. You have the anti-Muslim um, perspective. Um, you have the anti-immigrant rhetoric that has been with us you know, pretty consistently for probably almost four decades now uh, and longer than that, but in my lifetime, four decades that I can remember. So all that to say... It's, it's a way that conspiracy theory of immigrants are out to get us, you know, mm-hmm. Catholics are out to get us, is a way to show students that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And that there are these commonalities throughout history that show us that this has been a problem. Now, what can we do about it? How do we change our perspective today to make a difference? And again, as we said, psychology plays into conspiracy theories and all that, but for my students who are deeply invested in history, it is a way for them to begin to think about, okay, if this rhetoric is very similar to the rhetoric from 100 years ago or 150 years ago, what does that tell me? 
you know, if we're just interchanging parts here, if we're just substituting Muslims for Catholics and this group of immigrants for this group of immigrants, what does that actually say about the real dangers of this so-called, you know, conspiracy against the United States? And so it's a way to get them to think about patterns, get them to think about how do you evaluate rhetorical claims? How do you evaluate, you know, what politicians and other groups are saying about the people they identify as the enemies today, if they're all so interchangeable? And this is something that's been around for so long. Wow. Uh, How do we get everybody to take your class? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. no, that I mean that that really speaks to um, a little bit of what you know we're kind of trying to do here too, looking at at history and, and seeing the the echoes and what that can tell us about uh, things that are going on today. I think yeah, understanding that this is something that goes back decades or hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you're up for a little bit of kind of a lightning round. Sure. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw a few conspiracy theories at you. You just tell me a, a few things. What what pops into your mind? Okay, okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> I asked my listeners, you know, if they had any questions about particular conspiracy theories. So let's just jump through. Um, okay, let's see. Oh, yeah. Who really killed JFK? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, again, if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be very wealthy. Um, you know, there's so many different people who've been accused of, of partaking in that. Obviously, Lee Harvey Oswald is the one that officially was designated uh, as the, the lone assassin. Um, seems very plausible to me that there are other groups involved. Um, the mafia, for example, um, the Cubans, um, just because of the way that JFK and other administrations had treated Cuba. Um, I can definitely see that as being plausible, but again, there are people who know much more about that than I do, who've said that only Oswald is to blame. So I'll just leave it at that. All right. Um, you think there's more to John Wilkes Booth than we know as far as missing diary pages, a link to the Confederate government, a, a vaster conspiracy to kill Lincoln? Mm, no, I, I don't personally think so. Um, you know, the thing about Booth is he was very pro-Southern. Um, so it probably wouldn't have taken a lot to push him in that direction, but I don't think he needed any help. I think he hated what Lincoln and the Republican Party represented enough to to do it himself, along with the people he recruited to help him. Or was he just a good actor? Ah. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to hire somebody to do something. There you um, go. Let's see. Uh, Pearl Harbor. Do you think Roosevelt knew? Is it possible that, that we knew a little more than is let on ahead of time? Yeah. So I, I think... Certainly, the intelligence was probably there that an attack was going to come. Uh, was it specific enough to say on December 7th, 1941, you know, Japanese bombers will attack Pearl Harbor? I don't know about that, but I think there's certainly, sort of like with 9-11, there's enough there for, for the presidential administration to know there's something going on that we need to pay attention to. Um, did Roosevelt orchestrate it? Did he you know, allow it to happen so that we could go into the war? I think that's probably going too far. Mm, all right. Fort Knox. What's going on in there? You're not that far from Fort Knox. You're just in Kentucky there. Um, yeah. A lot of conspiracy theories, apparently. Yeah. I I mean, supposedly there's gold there. Um, I like guess. Like this story. I, I, I don't know. That That's right. one that I haven't looked at too closely. <laughs> me, me neither. Me neither. Um, and finally, uh, UFOs and aliens. It, it seems like every week now we're getting slow government leaks of, yeah, there's weird stuff. We just don't know. Uh, so what are they preparing us for, do you think? <laughs> uh, Will Smith, save us. No. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean... UFOs are unidentified flying objects. I think it's a very clear that those things exist. You know, logically, statistically, we're probably not the only life forms in the universe. That makes sense. You know, do you pull all that together into little green men or, you know, tall, sort of opaque men or alien beings? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, you know, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was great. I, I learned a lot of stuff that I'm going to dig more into. Uh, can you tell our listeners where to where to find you and your work? Sure. Um, so I have a, a website, jacksonianamerica.com, um, which largely now has a 
largely defunct blog, but there's some, I think, some good posts there about um, Jacksonian uh, history, Andrew Jackson, uh, reading history in general. I'm on Twitter, at Mark Cheatham. Um, so those are probably the two best places to find me. All right, great. And yeah, do you have any uh, final parting words as far as what you teach about conspiracy theories and what you really hope um, the students who take that class uh, take with them and spread? I really just want my students or even your listeners to to think think rationally, think logically, evaluate the evidence, and you know. I think the X-Files said question everything uh, back in the 90s, but not, you know, not necessarily to question everything, but, you know, when someone tells you, oh, there, there's some nefarious plot behind something, you know, at least be a little bit skeptical. Um, don't just embrace it uh, wholeheartedly. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That was awesome. Right? He was really great. I really enjoyed listening to him. He was just so very relatable. And I loved how he spoke about his family dynamics a little bit when getting a higher degree, especially in the subject of conspiracy theories. And I just thought it was so fascinating, the whole idea of asking of yourself, what is the basis of these beliefs? And and just the idea that if nothing is verifiable, presenting evidence doesn't make a difference. I mean, that was disturbing <laughs> in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's true. Yeah. You can say, look, here's here's proof that what you believe is wrong. And if you are in this conspiracy, if you're believing it, then anything that disagrees with that is part of part the conspiracy. Of the conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. So there's really no logically discussing it. No. Um, and so I really liked how he wanted his final message to his students to be to analyze evidence and to be critical thinkers. Yeah. And at a certain point, just cut people off. <laughs> at a certain point, don't even don't even converse because yeah. you could present all the evidence <laughs> you want. It's just not uh, not leading anywhere. I also really appreciated his dive into psychology of individuals who buy conspiracy theories that grasping for control yeah i thought was that was really an interesting take mm -hmm. um i'm not totally sure i agree with him on the corrupt bargain um mm. but you don't think it happened you know he's pretty convincing i think that even if he's right that agreement between adams and clay might be the least morally corrupt thing about that election. <laughs> uh, but that's a, a subject for another time. I mean, it was <laughs> it was pretty interesting how that wouldn't even be considered corrupt today. Yeah, really, it, it isn't even just, you know, in, in 2016 or 2020, that would seem not that crazy. It, the idea that somebody supports you politically and you give them a job in your administration that they're actually qualified for seems like, <laughs> totally normal I know. like not even, well you would hope yeah <laughs> you would you would hope that's how it would go <laughs> that's that's what happened right if there was a corrupt bargain i mean that's what i'm saying that's what you'd hope for today yeah and so it's just funny it's called corrupt at all perhaps it's the spoil system yeah it's just, yeah you know, it still happens rewarding today. your supporters yeah and working closely with them and, yeah and building bridges <laughs> right yeah right um I'm excited to share that Plotting Through the Presidents has been nominated in the history category. I can't believe this. For the Discover Pods Awards. It's truly an honor because we're up against some amazing finalists, like podcasts like You're Wrong About, The History Chicks, and Sawbones. Oh, wow. I know, like wonderful, super professional, network-produced podcasts. Yes. So we would truly appreciate your vote for our little indie podcast. Yes. We look up to those podcasts. For sure. So it's it's such an honor to even be up there on that list. Definitely. Um, the link is in the show notes to vote, or you can go to plottingthroughthepresidents.com slash vote. Uh, you can connect with us on Facebook, find out more at plodpod.com, where there are links to our Patreon. And there's so much fun bonus material there. Access to a private patron-only Facebook group with some very cool people. Yeah. And isn't there a tier of patron where you get to pick topics that we discuss yes. in our podcast? Coming later this season, we'll have a topic that was suggested that uh, is going to be real fun. <laughs> so that's really exciting. Yes. Uh, plodpod.com also has links to our merch shop. By the way... Halloween is coming up. Oh my goodness. We've got a couple of shirts that say, hi, I'm a fun person. I like history. 
And, and I like spooky things. And I like Halloween. Yeah, so you want you want a John Adams shirt that says facts are stubborn things that's also a Stranger Things parody? <laughs> you want an Adams Family shirt where instead of Gomez and Morticia, it's John Adams kissing Abigail Adams' hand? We got you covered. Awesome. I mean, the Dories are, are in it year-round. We love Halloween. We do. And so we do. It's our natural tendency, but you might like it for this month especially. Yeah, maybe you're just a little Mormon. Maybe you'd like a <laughs> William Henry Harrison for a good time, not a long time shirt. It's a big hit, especially amongst junior high and high school history teachers. <laughs> yes, I noticed that. Yeah, in fact, if you're a history teacher, reach out on Facebook or Twitter. I can hook you up with a discount code for our Tea Public store. Oh, that's really nice of you. And we love teachers. Yes, they're the future. I mean, they're teaching the future. They're teaching the future. They, they are, are the future. They're yeah. teaching those critical thinking skills. I hope. I hope so, too. <laughs> Next week, we've got a truly action-packed episode for you that's got some thrills and some chills. I can't wait. Oh, is it spooky themed? A little bit. Mm. Uh, until then, thank you for plotting along with us. Thank you for being with us. Bees are freaking cool.